It's an honor, an honor and a delight to be back in College Church and see some faces I have known for years and some new ones as well. Please turn in Holy Scripture to Genesis 39. I'm going to read the entire chapter, Genesis 39. Now, Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered, and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household, and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Now Joseph was well-built and handsome. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, Come to bed with me. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, My master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in his house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. One day he went into the house to attend to his duties, and none of the household servants was inside. She caught him by his cloak and said, Come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. When she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand and had run out of the house, she called her household servants. Look, she said to them, this Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. When he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. She kept his cloak beside her until his master came home. Then she told him this story. That Hebrew slave you brought us came to me to make sport of me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and, and ran out of the house. When his master heard the story, his wife told him, saying, This is how your slave treated me. He burned with anger. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison the place where the king's prisoners were confined. But while Joseph was there in the prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison, and he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did.
This is the word of the Lord. In times of peace, when a military office attempts a recruitment campaign, what is held up is the advantage of belonging to the Navy or whatever. Join the Navy and see the world. Learn self-discipline. Technical skills. Leadership skills. Pension is good. Comradeship. But of course, uh, there's not much mention of boot camp. Thirteen weeks if you're joining the Marines. Flies. Swamps. Too little sleep. Sergeants screaming at you. And then whether it's the swamps of Vietnam or the deserts of Iraq, it's not exactly paradise on earth. The muck, bug-infested jungles, a certain increased probability of death or being maimed for life. That is why, of course, in wartime, recruitment drives its appeal to heroism, not self-interest, to sacrifice, not travel, to love of family and nation, not personal advantages. Now, the Church of Jesus Christ, not least in the West, tends to make its appeal on too narrow a spectrum. Come to Jesus and enjoy the abundant life. I suspect that one verse on the abundant life in John 10 is the most quoted evangelistic verse used today. I have come that they might have life and they might have it abundantly. Well-being. Fellowship, comradeship, love, eternal life, victorious living. But of course, there are other texts and other emphases in Scripture. Discipline, self-sacrifice, taking up your cross, and so on. Here's the Apostle Paul. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. The very notion of taking up your cross daily to follow Jesus does not on first reading seem to conjure up pictures of the abundant life, but of abundant death. In no sphere is this more important than the sphere of temptation. 
fighting against the attractiveness of sin is such a theme permeating all of Scripture that it requires serious thought and reflection to understand how awful temptation is. So this morning I want to draw your attention to various aspects of Joseph's temptation in the passage we've just read, Genesis 39. First, a moralizing reading of the chapter, a reading that shows what moral issues are at stake. Think of the power of Joseph's temptation. It was strong because it was both subtle and flexible. Verse 6b. Now Joseph was well built and handsome, and after a while his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, Come to bed with me. Put yourself in Joseph's place and you see how subtle this is. As far as we can tell, he was about 17 when he was betrayed by his own family and sold into slavery. When he got down to Egypt, almost certainly he didn't know the language. Egyptian language was not the same as Canaanite languages. A 17-year-old kid from a fairly wealthy background, now a slave, and he didn't become chief attendant overnight. The Psalms remind us that they put his feet in fetters. Doubtless he started off cleaning out the stalls and raking out the muck. the lowest of the low on the slave pecking order. But gradually he, by dint of his own integrity, he won the trust of Potiphar, the slave owner, and was given more responsibility and leadership within the slave community. Things were going at least a little better, but he was still a slave. No prospect of returning home to see his family. No prospect of marriage. And suddenly, his, wife casts, his boss's wife casts her eyes on him. This could turn out to be an advantage. If she's happy, maybe he could win some freedom. Might relieve his bleak marital prospects at least. Moreover, if Joseph could not be coaxed, perhaps he could be stormed. That's what I mean by saying the temptation was both subtle and flexible. Hence, verses 11 and 12, one day he went into the house to attend to his duties and none of the household servants was inside. She caught him by the cloak and said, come to bed with me. Many is the Christian who is courageous on one front but fails elsewhere. He was being faithful as a slave, faithful as a servant. That doesn't mean he was going to be faithful in every arena of his life. Think of David, a man we are told after God's own heart who nevertheless managed to commit both adultery and murder 
Moreover, Joseph's temptation was strong because it was persistent. Many is the Christian who successfully fights off temptation when it comes once or twice. But what we're told, verse 10, is that she spoke to Joseph day after day. It wears you down, like water gradually eroding away the Niagara Gorge. The temptation comes and comes and comes and comes and you give in. That's what found Samson out as well. What is involved is a lowering of resistance. Instead of a, a shock temptation, gradually the thing doesn't look as bad as it once did. It's it's, it's now quietly seductive. It comes again and again. That, of course, is part of the danger of pornography. But it's worth also considering some of the reasons why Joseph successfully resisted this temptation. Let me list five. All part of a narrative. Number one, he successfully resisted temptation because of who he was. I don't mean to say something cheap, a mere truism. Listen to the reasoning of verses 8 and 9a. When he is facing temptation, he refuses, verse 8, and says, With me in charge, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. Now the circumstances could have been thought through differently by another person. This is Joseph's reasoning. But imagine another person in the same circumstances reasoning this way. Hey, I'm in charge of all the servants. I can arrange for them to be on the back 40 while I get the house alone with my boss's wife. Cool. Or, I have had such a hard life. I ought to find some corner where there's pleasure and fulfillment, release. Or, who's going to find out? She's not going to tell her husband. I'm not going to tell him. In other words, the circumstances themselves were no guarantee of the outcome. That Joseph reasoned this way and not some corrupt way is a reflection of who he is. The reason why he bucks the temptation is because of who he was. Quite a few years ago, at a church in another country, I came upon a story that was quite stunning in this respect. The young man in question, we'll call him John, was born into a Christian family, three older sisters. He was the youngest child, doted upon, loved, cherished, he was bright, was brought up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, went to university, became a doctor, 
interested in public health, and um, eventually married a Christian lass in the university. He himself was head of the Christian Union at his university. Ended up in North Africa working with leprosy patients. He was interested in public health. After some years, close to a decade, he moved to Cambridge. And his Christian experience, his Christian testimony, his medical care, his wisdom as a counselor ensured that it wasn't long before he became one of the elders. Two or three years later, he ran off with his nurse. They moved to northern England and he abandoned his wife and two children. And when we talked to John, he acted as if he hadn't done anything wrong. Why are you picking on me? What's your problem? And there's no way he was going to be reconciled. A year later or so, I was riding with a pastor of that church to a conference where we were both going to be speaking. And I said to him, all right, in retrospect now, a year's gone by, what happened to John? What went wrong? And he said, well, I've gradually come to the conclusion that John wasn't a Christian. I said, come again. He showed fruit of Christian vitality for years and years. He was a missionary. He chose mission work in a hard part of the world. Flies and leprosy. He was wise with so many people. What gives you the right to say he wasn't a Christian? He said, nope, look at it again. He was brought up in a Christian home where he was doted on by his older sisters. His parents thought he was wonderful, and he was. He was a good kid. He did everything right, and everything he wanted to do worked out. He wanted to go to medical school, went to medical school. Wanted to do public health, started public health, and then served in North Africa in a public health disease. Came back to Cambridge and joined a church that loved him and he enjoyed it and was soon among the elders and leadership. Everything he, he touched turned to gold. I cannot find any place in his life where he said no to temptation because it was wrong. He always did what he wanted to do. So when the pretty nurse came along, he did what he wanted to do. He did what he always wanted to do. I cannot find a place in his life where there was self-sacrifice and self-denial and brokenness and contrition and repentance. In other words, John was acting in line with who he was. Joseph acted in line with who he was. The second reason why Joseph successfully resisted this temptation was this. He was prepared to call a spade a spade, to label sin, sin. Hence we read, verse 9, How then can I do such a wicked thing? He does not speak of a peccadillo, a momentary weakness. 
a universal habit. Well, we all do things wrong once in a while, don't we? Unfortunate, but it's the way life is. He looks at it straight in the face and says, this is wicked. The devil does not normally come to Christians and say, here's a great gop of horrific wickedness. Jump in. He's much more likely to come to us and say, well, it's not that bad. There's forgiveness in Christ anyway, isn't there? And everybody's doing it. And then you've already lost. You start off by calling wickedness, wickedness. And then in the third place, he successfully resisted temptation because he feared God and saw the act with reference to him. Again, verse 9. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? When we're tempted, how often do we fight the temptation by saying, what does this look like to my heavenly Father? That's what Joseph did. He not only saw it as a wicked thing intrinsically, but it was wickedness with respect to God's definition of wickedness. 1 Peter says, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. Proverbs says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Psalm 36 describes a wicked person in these terms. There is no fear of God before his eyes. Joseph's commitment to God emboldened his loyalty to Potiphar. Let me tell you frankly that when a man or a woman, allegedly a Christian, sleeps with a partner other than the spouse, that is merely the climax of a substantial decline. Number four. Because Joseph knew not to play with fire. He successfully fought temptation because he knew not to play with fire. Look at verse 10. Though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. His reasoning was not, well, I'm not going to go to bed with her, but boy, she is nice to have around. There are some things that are better stayed away from. Keep to a path far from her. Do not go down to the door of her house. The person drawn to holiness will not try to see how close he or she can get to wickedness. And nowhere is this more blatantly, demonstrably, frequently true than in the arena of sexual temptation. Many decades ago, I attended a seminary in Toronto, Canada. We had the usual assortment of good lecturers and less able lecturers. The chap we had teaching us pastoral theology was a a man with decades of experience in pastoral ministry, and he was a good pastor. There's no doubt about it. Churches flourished under him. He was an able preacher. But let me tell you, quite frankly, he was a horrible teacher. His lectures in pastoral theology were built as bullet points. 
Today, I would like to talk to you about visiting people in a hospital. Number one, wear soft shoes. Number two, don't sit on the bed. Number three, don't stay too long. And you got 18 or 20 of these, you know? And he expected you to memorize them. My father was a pastor. I was brought up in a pastor's home. I, I wasn't tempted to wear jack boots in a hospital. I had no intention of doing cartwheels on the patient's bed. It, it, it was not stimulating. It was not well presented. It was boring, and I didn't enjoy it. But I'll never forget his lecture to a group of young men on counseling women. Number one, stay behind the desk. Number two, if she starts to cry, let her finish. Number three, stay behind the desk. Number four, if she continues crying, pass her a box of Kleenex. Number five, stay behind the desk. 27 points. Every second one was stay behind the desk. Now, I know counseling is complicated. I know that there might be time for warmth and all that. I, I know that. But the first week I was senior pastor in a church, I sat down in my study and in popped a young woman I'd got to know in the church who burst into tears. And I could see scrolling up before my eyes. <laughs> this in a day before there were computers. Nevertheless, I saw the scroll stay behind the desk. Stay behind the desk. In other words, Joseph resisted temptation because he knew not to play with fire. One man who taught me this was called Ernie Keefe, an American, who uh, was training to play with the Detroit Red Wings. He was a hockey player. The Lord broke his ankle three times before he got the hint and became a Christian. Now, decades later, he was almost 50 at the time, he was responsible for breaking me in in ministry in French Canada. And man, could that guy skate. French Canadians skate. We learn to skate before we learn to walk. It's part of the culture. So in the middle of winter, out in the ice rink, inevitably he'd attract six, eight, ten, eighteen-year-olds, twenty-year-olds, twenty-two-year-olds, twenty-six-year-olds, and boy, they could move. Then Ernie came on, and they looked like slow as molasses, slowpokes, compared with him. He was so quick, so powerful, and he could handle a puck. You don't realize how bad you are until you put somebody next to you who's good. But you know what he said? He resolved not to watch much hockey on television because it was still so attractive to him that sphere of life could devour him entirely even then. He knew not to flirt with it precisely because he loved it. One more. 
Joseph was able to fight off temptation because, number five, he was more concerned for his purity than for his prospects. Look at verses 11 and 12. One day he went into the house to attend to his duties, and none of the household servants was inside. She caught him by his cloak and said, Come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. Now, by this time, Joseph has to be in his late 20s. He might have been 30. He knew the language. He knew the culture. And he wasn't stupid. He must have guessed that when he ran out of the house, leaving his cloak behind in order to protect his integrity and his purity... He was leaving damaging evidence that she could use to twist him up. And that's what happens in the following verses. But his flight saved his integrity and lost him his freedom. A coward's flight reverses these priorities. But Joseph was more concerned for his purity than for his prospects. So these are moralizing ways of reading the chapter. All of these things are clear in the chapter. But now let us come to a structural reading of the chapter. And what we find now is some ways of God surrounding this temptation. Read the first few verses and the last few verses. Read them together, and you discover that they say roughly the same thing. In other words, the chapter begins and ends the same way. From a structural point of view, that's an inclusion. It means that everything in the chapter is to be read under that rubric, under that umbrella. Watch, verse 2. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered, and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master, When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household. Verse 5, from that day, he put him in charge of his household and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian. That's the opening. Now the closing. He's in prison. And we read, 20b, while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison, and he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. The whole chapter has got to be read under that pair of bullet points. Do you see what's being said? God often chooses to bless us in difficult circumstances rather than to place us in happier ones. Don't you think that he ever prayed when he was in Potiphar's household that he could escape the slavery? And eventually, of course, he does, but it takes years and years and years. And meanwhile, it's a context in which God blesses Joseph without taking him out of the misery yet. And when he's in prison, 
for something he didn't do. Unjustly accused, unjustly charged, unjustly imprisoned. He has to learn again that God may choose to bless us in difficult circumstances rather than to place us in happier ones. The new heaven and the new earth is not yet. So, there's a moralizing reading of the chapter and a structural reading of the chapter, clearly in the text. One more. A canonical reading of the chapter. How this fits into the Bible storyline. How it fits into Genesis. How it fits into the whole canon. A canonical reading. To get at this point, ask yourself, what is Genesis 39 contributing to the book of Genesis? What would you be missing if you ran from chapter 38 to chapter 40? Just drop 39. It would still make sense as a narrative. What are you missing? Well, in the first place, you're missing chapter 38 and its connection to chapter 39. Chapter 38, you will recall, is the story of Judah, one of the brothers back home in the land of Canaan, who's sleeping with Tamar. Gets into all kinds of trouble for it. And he's not a slave. He's a slave to sin, but not a slave the way Joseph is a slave. So, on the one hand, is a man who's got his freedom and is perverse in its use. On the other hand is a man who has faced slavery and retains his integrity. Who's the loser? And then, of course, there's chapter 40. Chapter 38 and 39 establish the importance of 39. 39 is a sort of foil to chapter 38. You see more clearly what's going in chapter 38 when you see the contrast of Joseph in chapter 39. What about chapter 40? Well, chapter 40 relates the narrative of the baker and the butler from Pharaoh's household. Apparently they've been imprisoned, perhaps on a charge of suspicion of treason or something like that. And they both have dreams, and by this time Joseph has a reputation for being able, by God's grace, to interpret dreams. He interprets both of their dreams, and one of them is told he is going to die. He's going to be killed in prison. That's the baker. And the butler is shortly going to be released. And indeed, that's what happens. The butler is released, and Joseph takes the opportunity to say, please, if you can ever put in a good word for me and get me out of here, I mean, I... I'm wrongfully imprisoned. I, I didn't do anything. If there's any way you can help, Butler says, fine, 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 and does nothing. Two more years pass. Joseph is still in prison. He's now pushing mid-30s. And then Pharaoh has a dream. And the butler then remembers Joseph. Joseph interprets the dream, and it comes to pass. It's a dream about the future of Egypt. Seven years of prosperity, lots of grain, needed storehouses and all the rest. Then seven years of famine. Somebody's got to prepare in advance and build bigger warehouses and so on. 
Joseph thus becomes, in effect, prime minister of Egypt. And the granaries of Egypt ultimately provide food not only for the Egyptians, but for surrounding countries, including those in the land of Canaan, including the 70 or so relatives that have been left up there, relatives of Joseph, who hear that there's grain in Egypt and go down to load up and bring some back for the family. To make a long story short, the whole family moves down there, and as a result, the family is spared. Humanly speaking, the famine is so severe that the chances of Joseph's entire family being wiped out are very high, wiped out from famine. But in fact, they're preserved by Joseph. And as a result, the Israelites find themselves in Egypt. Pretty soon, they're in slavery too. But centuries pass, and eventually God raises up a man by the name of Moses who leads them out of slavery and ultimately through Joshua into the promised land. Thus starts the whole founding of the Israelite nation. And in due course, the rise of the Davidic king, the beginning of fulfillment of the promise given to Abraham, the great-grandfather of Joseph, In you and in your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. The rising promises of a son of David coming, who will not only be son of Abraham, but son of David, of the tribe of Judah, chapter 38. Until finally, a baby is born to Mary, fulfilling these promises. And that baby is called Jesus. which is the Greek way of saying Joshua, a new Joshua. And this Joshua dies on the cross to pay for the sins of, sinner, people, for the sins of people like you and me. He rises the third day. The Spirit is poured out and his people are covenanted together as his blood-bought church. Tack on a few more centuries and pretty soon that explains why you're sitting in college church this morning. To put it another way, humanly speaking, the reason why you're sitting in college church today is because Joseph kept his zipper up. That's staggering. Now, I, I know, don't, don't misunderstand me. I, I know that God was not going to let the promise fall aside. One way or the other, that promise was going to be fulfilled. He promised that in Abraham and in his seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed, and that's what, what was going to happen. But the way in which it happened in God's providence was by the God-graced fidelity of Joseph, who retained his integrity and in consequence became prime minister of Egypt and saved the covenant people from obliteration by starvation which led ultimately to the coming of Jesus that's reading chapter 39 canonically that's how it fits into the Bible's entire storyline that's why chapter 39 is not only a, a little narrative on how to overcome temptation but how Joseph's overcoming of temptation led to the birth of the promised Son of God.
And who knows, on a much lesser scale, who knows that there may be some man or woman in this congregation who is fighting off temptation and somehow, by God's grace, returns to the cross again and again and falls for holiness and fights a good fight and retains integrity and the two marry and have children who are brought up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and they have children and they're brought up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and they have a child and that child turns out to be a new Whitfield or a new Samuel Rutherford or a new Billy Graham because those teenagers in Wheaton had retained their integrity. When we face temptation and either win or lose, we don't see far enough. We don't see clearly enough. We don't see the entailments of what we're doing, that we're not only commanded by Christ to fear God and to love him with heart and soul and mind and strength and our neighbors as ourselves, we're supposed to see this as part of the cosmic conflict. We, we struggle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and the rulers in the dark places. And, and ultimately, it's part of a conflict that bears fruit in this life and in the life to come. God's providence was working behind the scenes to bring about the creation of a nation and the preservation of the messianic line and the historic reality of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. In truth, Lord God, we need you every hour. Forgive us our sins, which are many, Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, that we may bring forth praise to your dear Son as long as you give us life. And grant that this may bear fruit in this life and in the life to come for the praise of Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.